Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience, the podcast designed to simplify the complex job of managing and leading people. And our goal today, as with every podcast, is to share at least one proven business practice that will help you build a more sustainable, profitable, and perhaps even purpose-driven company. This is a bit different than our usual podcast because it's not in the leadership and management vein per se, as we normally speak with our, our guests. This is this is a little bit different. And it came about, before I introduce our guests, I, I want to tell you how it came about. I uh, uh, Two things happened. One, I had the good fortune of playing golf with this guy. And if you get the chance to play golf with him, make sure that you check the uh, handicap indexes before you tee off because he's very, very good. And uh, But he's more than that. He's a gentleman and uh, you'll enjoy your round of golf. Uh, the second part of this, though, was I had a client recently who had a cybersecurity breach attack, ransomware attack. The CEO of the organization, sorry, chairman of the board of the organization, and I, I'm on their board of directors, I'm sorry, board of advisors, told me, he said, the money we spent for our, our cyber security insurance policy is the best money we've ever spent. So I put two and two together because our guest today, besides being a great golfer and a gentleman, is an expert at cybersecurity. Brandon Pauly is our guest, and, and uh, I'm excited to have him share with you the things he's learned about uh, cybersecurity and why it's probably at the forefront of so many businesses today. And if it's not, it should be. So Brandon, welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. Thank you very much, Ed. Happy to be here. And to the crowd, I hope Ed doesn't have you fooled because I think he beat me that day. So he's quite the golfer himself. I think it was a team effort, as I recall. Re regardless, we will not relive that. Um, I, I don't want to go back there because there were too many bad shots on my part. How did you become focused on cybersecurity? What was the genesis of you getting into this space? Well, I've been practicing law for nine years now. And uh, a few years ago, started focusing on healthcare compliance issues. And dealing with the healthcare industry, it, it was uh, fortuitous for me, it was uh, unfortunate for a client of mine, but they encountered a ransomware attack. And they came to me looking for advice first because I would advise them on compliance issues dealing with uh, the security and privacy of their healthcare data under the, the HIPAA high-tech framework. And so it was a natural question for me from this specific client, now that we have a threat to our data, what do we do next? And from there, it morphed into uh, taking more of an interest on the academic side and then getting into making this a, a niche area of practice for myself and uh, counseling clients, not only in healthcare, but more generally across many sectors. When did you know, Brandon, that this this niche uh, was really going to consume you, that it's it really would become the focus of your practice? In a way, sort of a, a neat way of looking at this area of practice and saying, wow, this is a really interesting topic. That first client that I assisted, they yeah. received what was an encrypted ransom note. And you open it up and there are threat actors, the bad guys from 
some network, I believe it was Belgium, the first one I encountered. And you see this ransom note that's encrypted and you sort of look at it and say, wow, this is a really interesting, cool thing. Uh, not cool for the client, but, but as uh, an attorney trying to grow my practice and really figure out what I want to do and, and where I want to be, I, I found it uh, really intriguing. And so that one moment of, of saying you're almost like a quasi-detective in a movie, um, seeing right. something you have heard about or read about or have seen in a movie, and now you're experiencing it in real life, it, it really triggered something in my mind that this is an area that I, I want to be in and I want to practice. And then on top of that, uh, I used to practice in Northeast Ohio, and I moved down to Columbus uh, uh, couple years ago. This is going on my third year in November practicing in Columbus. And the Columbus, Ohio market has really neat and exciting tech forward companies. And so being in this market, it almost pushed me even that much further forward saying this can really be not only a, a lucrative market, but one that you can really help clients and you can help the the needs of the specific market and, and be of real service to clients. Well, I would also assume it's attractive because I, it's got to be a growing, great, growing segment of the, the legal practice. It's, it's, it's got to have uh, uh, tremendous opportunities, a number of people. It, the more I talk about it with clients, the more that go, oh, yeah. Yeah, we've we've had something happen. And so it's it's not infrequent at all. It's frequent in terms of my clients. Absolutely. Uh, the the growth factor in, in this market, and I'll, I'll talk about this market being the legal market of cybersecurity, um, has been outstanding. And the reason being is cybersecurity and the topic of cybersecurity, it's not limited to any one sector. Every single business that has any sort of, I'll even just call it connectivity to the internet in, in uh, daily practice, has an internal network for their clients, uses electronic uh, payment processes for e-commerce. In the healthcare industry, electronically stores data and files. It really is a topic that is of concern or should be of concern, at least today, and, and this might not have been the case even a decade ago, but at least today, I believe every company in every sector uh, has a cybersecurity concern that it either is aware of or should be aware of. Give, give us a poor man's pie chart of the five or six categories of cybersecurity crime issues. So what, what percent of the pie chart is ransomware versus privacy issues, you know, you, you, you tell us what the categories, the four or five, six biggest categories are and, and, and what they constitute. Well, I'll back it up maybe one layer uh, before that and, and outline the three main categories of cyber threats. And then we'll get into the cyber threat that is probably of, of more relevance to your audience. But uh, cyber threats really can fall into three buckets. There's cyber crime, which are uh, actors, bad guys, threat actors that are targeting systems for financial gain or to cause some sort of disruption for, you know, let's call it a private business. It, most of the, the uh, time falls in the cybercrime bucket. Then there is a cyber attack, which oftentimes those are politically motivated 
crimes that involve either disinformation or information gathering. And then the third bucket is cyber terrorism, which that's generally intended to undermine some sort of electronic system, whether that be a private company or uh, as you may have seen, and, and these instances are certainly on the rise, targeting uh, electronic infrastructures and IT infrastructures of municipalities. The city of Akron in Ohio a few years back had a, a cyber terror incident. Uh, city of Atlanta down in Georgia had a significant one about 18 months ago. So somebody would be attacking a, a, a energy grid, that would be cyber terror. Exactly. Yep. Now, there may be a financial component of it, but right, those, right. those are the three buckets. For our purpose, I believe cyber crime, which is someone trying to get access to a, a company's system to do some sort of bad act to cause disruption and to seek some sort of financial remuneration for a return to status quo. Where does the... Uh robbing, if you will, of the database of key information, you know, social security numbers and identities and stuff like that. Is that part of cybercrime? It is. And the when when we look at cybercrime, we have to understand what the incentives are for the criminals. And the financial incentive stems from the value of certain information. We'll just call it on the black market, on, on the dark web whether that be social security numbers, banking numbers, um, in a healthcare context, Medicaid, Medicare uh, numbers to, to uh, purport Medicaid and Medicare fraud. So there, at the end of the day, when we speak about cybercrime, it's going to be about money and it's going to be about what the, the bad guys, the threat actors are able to recover for the work that they put in to either uh, lock up in the in the uh, context of ransomware, they'll actually freeze a system so you can't get access to that information. What are you willing to pay to get that information back? Or in a context of maybe using, uh, if you've heard of malware, where they will infect a system and behind the scenes start uh, divesting a company of, of their information so that they can take social security numbers bank accounts, and then sell it sometimes as a bundle. I, one social security number doesn't really have that much value, but if they're able to, if you've heard of the Equifax breach, um, they're able to bundle hundreds of thousands or millions of social security numbers, then that has real value. So uh, in, in many circumstances, it's, it's a volume business for the criminals. So my audience is made up of companies who predominantly are under a half billion dollars in revenues. Is is it going to be then cybercrime that's going to be of most concern to them, I assume, of the three categories? Uh, cybercrime, yes. I believe that would be uh, uh, really the, the focus and where they should invest their energy in learning, understanding, and ensuring that they are prepared for cyber events. So uh, my client who had the uh, ransomware attack and uh, had insurance, I didn't get into the details about what they paid for the insurance policy. 
Um, but I'm curious about how, how does this compare with our other insurances that we get into? And are they normal carriers, people we would know of? When we hear their names, we go, oh, okay, I, I know they're in insurance business. Or is this a specialty area where the companies who are in this arena are people we would not necessarily know? Well, the, the large insurers, so say like travelers, they, yeah. they offer, everybody knows travelers. It, yep. If you watch golf tournaments, they, it seems that they have a, a commercial on at every break. Uh, those um, institutional uh, uh, providers, they do offer their own cybersecurity policies, cybercrime policies. If you're dealing maybe with a more regional one, and the example that I will use uh, is Cincinnati Insurance Company. Sure. What they will do is is uh, contract with a third party underwriter. In the the third party that you will generally see carrying these policies is called Axis Insurance. Uh, Axis has a a pretty large market share in the insurance or in the cyber insurance industry um, as a specialty provider. So it it really depends on who your primary insurance carrier is. If you're working with a, a you know, we'll use Travelers in Cincinnati as the, the two examples. Um, you know, you may think you're getting your insurance policy through Cincinnati Insurance, but the, the cyber policy will actually be run through Access Insurance, whereas yeah. Travelers, it'll still be under their umbrella. In, in terms of, uh, what, half million dollars worth of coverage, what would somebody expect to pay? And I'm just picking that number arbitrarily. I don't even know what it would, what we, what we should be thinking in terms of. But if that's, if it's a half million dollar policy, what would we pay? Well, generally, we are looking at about fifteen hundred dollars per million dollar of coverage, and the average deductible that I see is generally in the range of about ten thousand dollars. So where the the most of the cyber policies that I have encountered, and again, this is fortuitous because the, the market that you're serving and what your clientele is, that's generally who I would be representing in these scenarios. So I know more about this topic in this pond as opposed to representing maybe a, a national bank and, and their issues, which it, even though it falls under the same umbrella term of cybersecurity, are two very different environments. So for, for the, the coverages that your clients will probably be interested in, the policies range from about 500,000 to 5 million. And then, and then from there, the, the general uh, $1,500 premium you know, will escalate as you increase your coverage. All right. Well, that's that's given me scale and context of uh, of of what we're talking about company spending, and that's for the most companies that I can think of. That's a manageable number. You're listening to the Ed Epley Experience. Email Ed now with your questions for today's guest to podcast at theepleygroup.com. In his book, Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros, author Ed Epley breaks down key practices of professional management, how to implement them, and why it matters. Purchase your copy on Amazon.com today. Develop your competitive edge for the future while building a sustainable and thriving business. I know there's discussions about audits for your risk. Who should be doing these audits? Because I can't imagine that most companies 
that are, let's say, below $20 million have somebody who's necessarily trained to know what to look for in terms of the risk ex- exposure that a company has. So wh- what's the right way to go about getting an audit and, and knowing it's uh, independent and you know not somebody who has, a, if you will, a horse in the race? Well, this, and I'll step back to say, this is part of the reason why privately held, say in the, the revenue of 50 million to 250 million annually, why they are such a target for cyber criminals in, in today's environment. It's because it's almost a low hanging fruit concept. The criminals, these are smart people and, and they do it to make money. Um, they, we, there may be political activists that are involved in cybercrime and, and you know, things you hear about election hacking and, and things like that. But for our purpose, we're dealing with uh, individuals that at the end of the day want to make money. And the path of least resistance is often enticing for these criminals. And so in this market segment, and where they know that a, a company that has $100 million in, in revenue, they may have two or three IT individuals. And these IT individuals, they're more, uh, I would say, uh, skilled or qualified to set up workstations, to set up email, to make sure that a company has a vendor with maybe like a cloud service for uh, certain data storage, or to make sure that their Outlook is up to date or to make sure that their McAfee antivirus is up to date. Well, and their systems talk to each other. It's it's functional in nature. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's not you know, not to knock any of maybe like a smaller market IT infrastructure, but the the preparedness in dealing with cyber crime in a smaller mid-sized privately held company is much different than you know, what a Chase Bank will have in their department as far as the individuals that are trained and knowledgeable about what the threats are and, and how to deal with them. So in getting down to the question about audit, the, the most important question before you do it internally is to really have an honest conversation if who is being tasked with this process knows what they're doing. It's 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 a, a very it's it's a complex environment to figure out where your vulnerabilities are, right, and where your key data assets are and what they are, and so it it starts with understanding the knowledge in the room, and then if you ultimately determine you don't have the knowledge in that room, there are plenty of third party vendors that uh, local, national, regional, that do these sort of almost like stress tests. They come in and and they'll look at your system, they'll look at your data, Uh, they will simulate and instigate attacks on their own to figure out where your vulnerabilities are and what you need protected. So, um, you know, it's, it's a long way of answering the question about the auditing, who does the audit. The, the, the first part in that analysis is understanding who and what you have in the room and figuring out if you can do it yourself. And then from there, seeking out the professional help of uh, third-party IT consultants, uh, attorneys that, that deal in cybersecurity. Because in a good audit will identify vulnerabilities and identify the assets you need to protect. 
So do you do audits as part of your practice, Brandon? I do. Uh, and, and generally, the audit on my side and, and what an attorney would be able to add to it are ensuring that you have policies and procedures in place so that you have a certain level of preparedness within the organization. A different audit would be a technical audit yeah. to where you would get an IT professional looking at your internal network infrastructure, uh, looking at the use of data internally within a company, looking at the use of, of email systems. Those would be more proper for a technical IT person right. to uh, conduct those sorts of audits. Where does your audit end and where would an IT audit begin? Where, where is the, how much overlap would there be between what you would do versus an IT audit? There wouldn't be much overlap, but there would be a, a, a certain level of uh, working together because what, the, what a lawyer would bring would identify the ramifications for breach as it relates to certain data. So, okay. so I'll use a healthcare context. Uh, the IT person, they might know about the, the code and the syntax that goes into a, a certain uh, data storage system on a healthcare entity's network. I wouldn't know that at all. I, I would right. maybe be able to read it, be able to understand at least the gist of the conversation. But when it gets down to, to the actual code involved, I would have no idea because I don't have any training and I would sound like a fool to even attempt to speak that language. Right. right. But what I would be able to do is inform the IT professional, here are uh, key data sets that we need to protect. And the reason we need to protect them is because if there is a breach, the potential liability and exposure of the company, not only from the intangible loss of confidence and trust from the, the marketplace, but again, in a healthcare context, the government would come down and, and start fining the healthcare entity for not appropriately protecting the information. So it, it sort of works. There's a certain level of symmetry in, in how to view the problem. And it's, it's a technical and a legal problem at the same time. Yeah, I got it. All right. Now, something occurred to me is with COVID, uh, is, uh, this environment, uh, people working remotely and, and from their homes more than they ever have before. Some of the firewalls, some of the, some of the capacity to protect data, I would think would be lower because of people not working inside the walls of their organization. That may be a misconception on my part, but, but it would seem to me that that would be possible. And then the second thing is, is there a difference between, as, if, as a business owner, should I be worried only about my company's exposure or should I also be worried about the people who work for me and them inadvertently in their personal world with their phones or whatever, uh, making us more uh, what would you call prone to to being hacked or or uh, being uh, uh, put in harm's way, for lack of a better term? A really good question, and and especially as workforces uh, transition to remote work, this is it's a question that is being considered by the insurance companies on how to deal with it. Because let's talk traditionally. Traditionally, uh, a cyber insurance policy it's it's concerned about the network not necessarily about the physical location. And even though 
in today's environment, we have a transition sort of en masse to uh, workforces working at home. Their most companies had built in the ability to work remotely, even if not relied on exclusively as now. Most, most companies had the ability to log into a network after hours from home on an individual worker's cell phone, on an individual's laptop or iPad. So, so it's not, this situation isn't really a novel question for the insurance industry because they, they have already built into their coverages the, the concept of individuals being able to uh, tap in and, and network into their company's information through remote access. But what companies are looking at now, again, it, it's more, it's the network that is involved, not the physical location. And by working exclusively remotely, what there, there is an increase in uh, say downloading sensitive data to a personal computer where you may be in your company's network for a certain functionality, but then you log out of that network and you save an Excel spreadsheet with customer information, contact information and bank accounts to your uh, personal computer that is no longer tied into the network. So the question then becomes what happens if that personal computer is hacked. Does that become the company's problem or is that the individual who had a lapse in judgment and took the sensitive data off of the, the network and onto their personal computer? And the, the short answer to that is it's really, it's both the company and the individual's problem. It's the company's problem because they better have had procedures and policies and training on those procedures and policies so that they can turn around and, and let investigators, you know, whether it be government investigators or, or whether there's a, a private cause of action brought against the company for uh, uh, mishandling data, they better be able to uh, point to those procedures and policies and training to be able to say, we tried our best, we did what we could to train our employees to act appropriately when they are entrusted with such information. And then it's the individual's problem because you're going to have the company pointing the finger at the individual. And then you're going to have the insurance company pointing the finger at the individual saying, we don't cover this because it didn't happen on our network. It might have happened in the course of your employment with ABC company but we only cover events that happen on the company's network. Both my son and daughter, I should say our son and daughter, um, work uh, for other organizations um, and they are allowed to work from home regularly, routinely. Are there policies for them as individuals that they could get that would protect them in the event of uh, cybercrime of some sort and their device was found to be part of the problem that's you know it, 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 is that something they should be thinking about and should be looking into there are policies available and and it is a growing market this personal cyber insurance coverage 
where it, it gets a little bit tricky, and, and again, the, the devil's in the details when you're dealing with insurance companies. I, I hate to say it, but uh, you know, the old adage is you know, the insurance companies don't get multi-story high-rises in every major city because they pay out policies. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a fact. And so the, the question really becomes, you know, the, the devil is in the details about what is covered and what events are covered. Uh, so are there personal cyber liability coverages that would incorporate use of personal devices in your, your personal home uh, internet connectivity? Yes, there are. But would, would an, an insurance company, if you're working with extremely sensitive data, let's say bank accounts of individuals and social security numbers of individuals, uh, would that be contemplated as part of the risk the insurance company is taking on in that coverage. It, it may be excluded. So it, it really is something to where you need to discuss with the insurance carrier and have clarity upfront to understand what is actually covered. Yep, I, I can see it's uh, fraught with peril um, and it's still evolving, but it's really fascinating. And, and I, can, I can tell that it's something that you have uh, continue to have you've continued to grow in your knowledge but it continues to be evolving it that that what you know today is may not be as as important as what what's happened six months from now right it's 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 going to continue to change absolutely and and one example that might be of relevance for your clientele and, and the listeners here uh, executive dno policies generally contain an ex, an exclusion for cyber threats so we are explain for our audience in case they don't know the nomenclature DNO directors and officers insurance. So basically leaders of an enterprise or an organization will have some sort of uh, coverage for themselves um, so that, you know, generally a, a an officer or a director of a company, there's a fiduciary, a heightened relationship to where they owe to their company. And, and what ends up happening in, in certain scenarios is if the company is found to have done something wrong, individuals that are harmed may not only look at the company, but they will look at the, the top level executives to figure out if there would be personal liability for some sort of gross negligence or, or uh, other conduct that uh, could have been prevented but for uh, an officer or director's um, either failure to act or just downright inappropriate actions. And so, uh, and, and I'm, I'm trying to recall the, the company, it, it might have been one of the, the uh, credit search providers, either Equifax or, or TransUnion, I forget. But I, I want to say their chief information officer actually had criminal charges leveled against him. Um, in relation to a cyber breach. And so what ends up happening are these insurers, generally an insurance policy doesn't cover uh, intentional acts or criminal acts. And so the, the uh, coverages and the environment as it relates to, at least under a, a director's and officer's liability uh, policy, it's tending more towards specific exclusions related to cybercrime and cyber threats. 
He's Brandon Pauley. He's an attorney here in the Columbus, Ohio area. He's an expert at cyber crime security and and other related legal matters. And it's a it's probably an area of your business that you may not have done as much homework as you maybe should have. We always ask our guests to um, give one piece of advice and only one, if they could only say one thing to the audience that would allow them to run a more effective organization. What would be your one piece of advice about the area in which you, you focus, Brandon? In one word, it would be preparation. The, and, and to expand on that thought, um, cybersecurity shouldn't be an issue only after there's a breach. Right. It, it should be in place and, and on uh, an organization's leadership's mind before it ever becomes a problem for your organization. And we'll use Ohio as an example as to why preparedness is so important. Um, Ohio in uh, 2017 uh, passed legislation, their Cybersecurity Act. And what it essentially did was create a, a safe harbor, affirmative defense type concept for organizations that, for lack of a better term, tried. If they put written policies and procedures in place, if they used employee training, and they really tried to prepare themselves for what in, in today's marketplace, sometimes it's an inevitability of, of having a cyber breach. But as long as you try, the state of Ohio created this, this ability to have an affirmative defense to lessen your exposure in the event of a cyber breach. Okay. So companies, it's not only best practices to ensure that you have some sort of uh, policy in place internally, but there, there's also a financial incentive uh, through the application of the law, whether that be uh, state law, whether that be, say, in a healthcare context, uh, HIPAA right. uh, penalties. There, all, every enforcement agency that I have had to deal with, the penalties are less severe when an organization can demonstrate that they prepared or at least tried to prepare for the threat that they ultimately encounter. If people would like to reach you uh, to discuss their issues with regard to cybercrime and, and security and preparation, what's the best way for them to reach you, Brandon? Well, my law firm is Brennan Mana Diamond. Um, we certainly have a website with my information on there, but via email at btpauley, P-A-U-L-E-Y, at bmdllc.com uh, would be a great way. Or uh, I'm always happy to, to chat. Uh, you know, I always give my cell phone out, 614-582-6495. Uh, give me a call, even if it's just to... Uh, bounce ideas off of and, and you know, discuss what you know, your company may be thinking about, but maybe you're not ready to go down that, that pathway. Um, it, it's an interesting topic to just have frank conversations about. Fascinating, fascinating conversations, because again, I think, as you pointed out, generally most companies do not think about this till they need it. 
till they've till they've uh, they've got a problem. And uh, this this being prepared really makes a whole lot of sense. I really appreciate you taking time to join us today, Brandon. I suspect you'll be hearing from a few of our, our listeners, and and certainly uh, we want to have you back again and talk about what else goes on. Uh, I'm guessing every six to twelve months we ought to have this conversation. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's the Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, group.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills. 